Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Tis the season to be jolly, but military service members and veterans often experience a spike in depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, even suicide. For some of the warning signs and how you can help, we turn to the director of the Warriors Heart Admissions, Michael O'Dell. Mr. O'Dell, good to have you with us. Yes, thank you so much. And let's begin with Warriors Heart Admissions. You're based in Texas, but you've moved to Virginia. What does the organization do? Yes, so we have two facilities, uh, one in Texas, one in Virginia, and uh, they both are, are here to treat veterans, first responders, and active duty military who struggle with substance abuse and post-traumatic stress. All right. And so you have licensed counselors that uh, are available to the folks that want to come in and avail of themselves? Yes, sir. Fully licensed and accredited to include the Joint Commission. We've got doctors, nurse pracs, and all the clinicians they need to get their healing in order. And tell us about your own story. What led you to found this? Because you are a Marine Corps veteran of Iraq and saw some heavy-duty action there, correct? Yes. So I'm from Bandera, Texas, which is where the Warriors Heart Texas location is. And I joined the Marine Corps when I was 19 years old, quickly deployed to uh, Fallujah, Iraq, and Ramadi. And when I got out of the Marine Corps in 2010, uh, I struggled severely with substance abuse and post-traumatic stress. And uh, I ended up finding myself about five years later sitting behind bars in prison in Texas for substance abuse related issues. And uh, I sat there for two years and um, wondered how I could have an honorable discharge, have served my country so well and honorably, and then wound up in the penitentiary. And when I was released from prison, I actually found my place at Warrior's Heart. And I've been here since, uh, almost six years now, uh, serving this population in this community. And that's kind of a double-edged situation, because if someone does end up in prison for some issue related to post-traumatic stress or whatever the case might be, that limits future employment prospects, unfortunately. It does. It becomes very challenging. Uh, a, a lot of people will not look past your past. Uh, and they only want to know what you're about. And so I was I was blessed with the opportunity uh, to be able to use the things that I've gone through in my past to help other people come out of that. And let's talk about the holiday season, the Christmas season, Hanukkah season, whatever you want to call it, holidays. It does tend to magnify. What have you found with respect to the population you serve, veterans, people still in active duty military and first responders. Yes, yeah, so the holidays are tough. Especially, so for the for military, a lot of us will deploy, we'll be gone for the holidays, and we form this tight brotherhood, this camaraderie with our fellow soldiers, Marines, and service members. And a lot of the times, some of them that we served with are no longer with us, whether they died in combat, whether they succumbed to suicide, um, whether they committed that final act, they're no longer with us. And so oftentimes the holidays can bring those memories back. They can bring back the trauma. They can bring back that loss that we suffered through. And then the first responders, uh, a lot of them, we know that things escalate during the holidays, celebrations, parties, uh, drinking, uh, the, the, the festivities that come along with it bring uh, problems. And the first responders spend their holidays away from their families trying to protect the community and respond to these uh, these situations through the holidays. So 
when a first responder might think of, of July 4th or Christmas or New Year's, they're not thinking about a picture-perfect holiday. They're thinking about the accidents that they have to respond to and then come home and act like it's all okay. In watching the Army-Navy game, you know, last week on television taking place up there in New England Patriot Stadium, they had cutaways to different military units around the world as they were watching the game. And in that case, you had service members operating together somewhere far away from home, but at least they had one another, even though it's the holiday season. What's the dynamic in which a service member then might be home, but the camaraderie and the fellowship of those service members around them are not there, and it's just family and people on the street driving by? Yeah, it's it's a, you know, every time a warrior comes through the gates at Warrior's Heart, one of the things that we do as an organization is welcome them home. Every warrior that comes through our gates gets welcomed home. And a lot of them don't know what that means at first. It really is spiritual. When a first responder or a service member comes back from a mission or comes back from deployment, they might be home, but they're not really there. Their mind is with their brothers in combat. Their, 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 uh, their thoughts are with them, and they're acting like they're home. They're trying to be home, but they're just not there yet. And those that are there with them, what can family members, friends, acquaintances do to help ease that situation and make them feel like they belong where they are? Because words can sound empty. They can. And, you know, I, I go back to to my experience. Uh, it, it, when I came, when I was home, I was not well. I was not okay. I was, I was not doing good. And people continued to ask me what was wrong. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Why are you not okay? Why can't you fix yourself? And I know that they meant it. I know that they wanted me to do well. But those words pierced my soul. It just, it set in stone that I'm not okay. And so I think one of the best things you can do if you notice a loved one is struggling is to just love them and listen to them and when appropriate, support them. But I just go back to what's wrong. It's like, don't ask them what's wrong. Clearly they're not okay. And what are some of the external signs that people should look for to go into that mode of simply listening and being empathetic without trying to probe and give empty advice. Yeah. So, so there's, there's all kinds of signs and symptoms out there. It's like, you can look for sadness on your, on your loved one's face. You can, uh, a loss in appetite, fatigue. You can see feelings of guilt and shame and, and they're, they're just not present. If your family member or loved one is not present and you can tell something's wrong, something's wrong. People crave presence. And when they don't have it, something's off. And what can you say then that has meaning? Or is there a way to gently suggest that they go to a place like Warriors Heart Admissions? There are other organizations that offer these types of services. Is it okay to simply suggest check them out? It is. We we highly recommend. So there's a lot of uh, good videos on YouTube. We have a documentary, Warriors Healing Warriors. It's on Amazon Prime. And it really paints a beautiful picture of who we are and what we do and why we're here. But what a loved one can do is is just say, hey, I, I can tell that you're struggling. I know that you know that I know, and I want to be there to support you. I found this resource, and, and if you'd like, I can call, or you can call, or they can call you. 
my team is very experienced. I'm a veteran, as, as we talked about already. I've got uh, a retired police on my team. We, we understand what's going on. So you're not going to be talking to someone in some other country that doesn't know what you're going through. We get it because we've been there. And people that have troubles with alcohol, alcoholism, there is a heightened temptation, heightened availability, heightened pushing almost of drinking during the holiday season at the holiday gatherings and so forth. How do you navigate that one? That's a tough one, especially for folks that, that truly do struggle with substance abuse because we want our holidays. We, we know we're not perfect. We, we know that. People know they're not perfect. And, and when we know we're not perfect and we're seeking a perfect holiday, it adds stress. It adds pressure. And then the pressure will explode. And people, it's okay for folks out there that, are, that have a drink with their family and loved ones. That's, that's all fine. But for the ones that can't do that, we try to be normal. And so we try to fit in. And then next thing you know, we're not fitting in and things have exploded from the pressure of just trying to be what we think is normal. So a pure eggnog without the rum, that's not such a bad way to host a party then, is it? That's not a bad way to host a party. All right. Any other thoughts people should understand when, when uh, having a loved one who is a service member, veteran, or first responder around in the holidays? So there's a lot of things that loved ones and the, the warriors themselves can do. If they're in recovery, they can go to a meeting. They can, they, if they're in recovery, they understand that service is key. Finding somebody they can serve, finding something they can do with their time that helps others. And family members can engage in that as well. Take the family out and go serve somebody. That brings so much more meaning to, to the holidays than just trying to make it so picture perfect because we know it's not going to be that way anyway. Michael O'Dell is director of the Warriors Heart Admissions and a Marine Corps veteran. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.